Please remain standing for the reading of our scripture passage from the Gospel of John. John's Gospel, the very first chapter. I'll be reading verses 14 through 18. John 1, verses 14 through 18. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. You have heard this reading of God's Word. Now let's ask God the Spirit to make this reading profitable to us. Let's pray together. O Spirit, open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in Your law. Quicken our hearts so that we would have confidence in these words and help us not just to be hearers, but to be doers as well. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. I'm delighted to be with you again. If you're a first-time visitor, I am not the pastor of this church. Please give them a second chance um, after today. Yesterday... My wife and daughter very efficiently took down all Christmas decorations. The Christmas tree is back in the box. Um, and uh, everything else, the ornaments and everything. It, it, uh, it moves me to think about uh, an event where I would say this is a true confession. <clears throat> Every November where I teach at the seminary, we had a staff member who would dutifully decorate, and he did a wonderful job, had a very excellent taste, and almost at the center of everything were hallways intersected in our administrative offices. He would set up a manger scene, a nativity set. It was a Yadro nativity set, and if you know Yadro, you know it's this very well-known um, Spanish um, design, uh, nondescript, and at the, at the center of it all was this little abstract with no facial features painted, little Jesus laying in a manger, and the shape of it, and without facial features on it, it looked sort of like a peanut. And so one of my colleagues and I, every November, would kidnap Jesus, and we would put a peanut in the manger. And our colleague... Now, this isn't funny unless you think it's funny, and then it's funny, but... uh, And our colleague would put out this appeal of who is disrespecting our Lord in such a way as to kidnap him and put a peanut in his place, and after a memo or two, we would secretly, surreptitiously, quietly bring baby Jesus back. That's the true confession. But it got me uh, looking, you know, you can get all kinds of manger scenes. You can get a Lego, besides a Yadro, you can get a Lego, you can get a pewter manger scene, there are Mikasa manger scenes, origami, there are nesting doll manger scenes, <clears throat> there's even a moose manger scene I saw. 
And there's even a life-size manger scene that's a silhouette version with Santa bowing before the manger. Yeah, there's a little literary suspension of belief involved there, to be sure. But here's the thing. We read this passage from John's Gospel. I have never seen a manger scene based on John chapter 1. Now, why is that? It's so different, isn't it, from Matthew's story of the birth of Jesus and Luke's story of the birth of Jesus, where you have human figures and you have dates and you have people moving from place to place. There's a real earthiness of Matthew and Luke's birth stories. This is John's birth story, but it seems so abstract, doesn't it? It seems like it moves right out of the sphere of real-life history into some mystical or theological stratosphere. And here's the question, is John stealing the baby Jesus from the Christmas story? And I want us to understand, obviously, that he's not. And he's not, if we understand this, that this phrase grace and truth in what we read here in these passages, if we understand grace and truth in its proper sense. Now, often we talk about speaking in grace and truth as if it's the oil and the vinegar and the salad dressing. We need to be gracious, but we need to tell the truth. And that's true. We should tell the truth. That's what a Christian must do. But the Christian must also be gracious. And so speaking the truth in love, for instance, is a similar expression. But I'm submitting to you that John doesn't quite mean that here. He means something more. This word, this phrase, grace and truth, doesn't take us to how we should speak to other people, but it takes us to another place. It takes us to the foot of Mount Sinai 15 centuries earlier. If we understand what John means when he says grace and truth here, we're going to be not nonplussed with John's Christmas story. We're actually going to be in awe because we will realize that John is talking about the selfsame glory of God that appeared to Moses on Mount Sinai. But now that glory has appeared in a different way. John is describing here the glory of the faithful God, the God that makes a covenant with his people and then sets about to keep his covenant. And here's what overall we'll see from this passage as we look at it more closely. That the faithful Lord fully reveals his glory in the Son. And therefore, if we want to behold the glory of the Lord we must behold it in the Son. That the faithful Lord fully reveals Himself in the Son and reveals His glory in the Son. So if we want to see the glory of the Lord, we have to look to the Son to see it. That will come to us in three pieces, not surprisingly. First of all, the faithful glory revealed. Look at verse 14 with me. The faithful glory revealed. This one verse has much much more even than we can uh, spend time explaining this morning, but just simply look at it. And the word, what word is it? It's that word that was mentioned in the very first verse of John's gospel, the word that was in the beginning with God. And uh, scholars have wondered what John means when he says word. Is it some principle? Is it some philosophical subject? Is uh, Is it pure divine reason, but John's very clear. It's not a principle, it's a person. 
because this word was in the beginning with God and that word was God and now that word has come in the person of Jesus Christ. And the very opening of John's gospel should take us back to the very beginning of the Bible, in the beginning. In other words, the word becoming flesh tells us that that word which created all that is, is now the word being revealed in Jesus Christ. This is God himself. That word became flesh. Now, sometimes the Bible uses the word flesh to mean our fallen human nature, our sinful nature, but that's not what it always means. And here it just means a human nature. The word took to itself a human nature, became a human living person. That doesn't mean that God turned into man, but that God took to himself a human nature, even as we confessed in the Nicene Creed this morning, that Jesus was both God and man. And it dwelt, he dwelt among us. The word dwelt here, it's a word that um, you might, if you could turn the word tent into a verb, it's God tented among us. So when was the last time that God lived in a tent? Well, he lived in a tent with Israel in the wilderness, in the tabernacle that he revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai. And here's a good point to stop and, and, and observe. John is an avid, devoted, knowledgeable reader of the Old Testament. You could almost say John's Gospel is the last book of the Old Testament because it completes the Old Testament in a way that is well beyond the average reader's grasp. I'll say the same thing is true of the book of Revelation. If you're trying to read Revelation looking forward, you're going to make all kinds of mistakes. You need to read the book of Revelation looking back at the Old Testament so that you can look forward with it. But here, John is saying, the glory that lived in the tabernacle of Moses, that went with Israel through the wilderness, and then ultimately when Solomon built a temple and the glory cloud descended in that temple, that's the glory that's being manifest here. It's the glory of God revealed on Mount Sinai. And we would be moving too quickly to not pause and comprehend what the implications of this are. Uh, Perhaps you can recall from the book of Exodus, uh, as Israel came to Mount Sinai after the Exodus, and uh, and there there was a great fire and a cloud over Mount Sinai, and they heard the rumbling, which was the voice of God. And the people begged Moses, you go up and talk to God for us. We'll wait here. Because the place where the glory dwelt is a holy place where righteousness rules. Because God's there. In Deuteronomy, a similar version of the same story, it says, And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven. Try to visualize that in your mind, this this mountain on earth filled with this awesome presence, but that awesome presence extends all the way up infinitely into the heavens because this is a place where heaven and earth are touching because the Creator who dwells in a high and holy place is now making His presence known on earth. And it, it, it was simultaneously beautiful but terrifying. And if we think of the story of Israel 
at Mount Sinai, we might also quickly remember that while Moses was up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, Aaron the high priest and the people were down at the foot of the mountain making a God who would go before them into the promised land, making a, a God out of, gold, out of gold, a golden calf, as you remember. So here we have this, this picture of great tension, the, the, the glory of God come down to dwell on earth, but the people of God at the foot of Mount Sinai worshiping idols. And that's what brings us to mind, brings to mind then the next phrase, the phrase in the sermon title, this glory became flesh and it was full of grace and truth. If you remember, or if you're familiar with the story, when God sees that Israel has broken covenant with him and worshiped the golden calf, God is ready to be done with them. He's going to annihilate the people, and then he even says in Exodus 32, Moses, I'll start over with you. I don't need that rabble down at the foot of the mountain. I can keep my promises by fulfilling them through you. Just like he began with one man, Abraham, centuries earlier, he would begin with one man again, Moses. But Moses, Moses is a faithful mediator. He's a faithful priest, and he knows God has made promises. And so Moses prays. And Moses prays two things. God, but you promised. And the second thing he prays is, and what will the nations say? Because God's whole purpose to save his people was so the nations would know him. And God relents. And he not only relents from his judgment, but he he is persuaded by Moses to go ahead and go with the people and accompany them through the wilderness to the promised land. And at that point, God says to Moses, ask of me whatever you will, and I'll grant it. One wish. What does Moses ask? He says, show me your glory. Of All the things that God might put on your mind to ask, you get one wish, what would, you, what would it be for? But Moses asked for the most high and holy and privileged thing a person can ever experience, which is to see God himself. But God says, no one can look on my glory and live. But I'll tell you what, Moses, I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock, I'll shadow you with my hand, And after my glory has passed by, you will be able to look at it as it fades away. I'll give you that much. God in His love did not reveal His full glory to Moses. But God in His love granted Moses a distant vision. And in Exodus 34, and here's the relevance for our passage here this morning. As the glory of God passed by, the Lord said, The Lord full of loving kindness and truth. Different translations translate it different ways. Some translations say covenant love and faithfulness. But the point is, the two words there mean God is a God who keeps His covenant, who makes His covenant, and then God is a God who is faithful to His covenant. God makes promises and He keeps His promises. 
That's what those two words mean. And those two words start to appear all over the Old Testament in the Psalms. Look for them sometime as you're reading through the book of Psalms. But the words that John uses here to say grace and truth are the very same words that were spoken at Sinai. You see, John isn't saying Jesus came full of grace as opposed to not being gracious, and, God, and Jesus came full of truth as opposed to being false. He's saying, no, the God who appeared to Moses at Sinai is now revealing himself to you in the person of Jesus Christ. You ever think about that? We see more than Moses got to see. And the Bible says, God spoke to Moses as a man speaks to a friend. He spoke to no one else like that. And yet now, through Jesus Christ, we see more of God than Moses saw. For a lot of people, the glory of God and the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant, the most of what they know comes from the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark. If you're not familiar with it, it's a modern-day archaeologist searching for the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was God's throne. It was God's battle chariot. It was also the place above which God met above the mercy seat where atonement for sins was made once a year. The ark was simultaneously majestic and also terrifying, reassuring but yet fear-inducing. And that movie, interestingly, ends with the ark stored in a nondescript, unlabeled crate and put in some government warehouse, presumably never to be found again. Well, something of the parable, a parable of this passage. By the way, if you go to Universal, I'm sorry, Disney's Hollywood Studios, and you go see this show called Raiders of the Lost Ark, there's no ark in the show. And you see, that, that furthers the parable, right? To look at the glory of God, to forget the glory of God, to read about the glory of God in John's Gospel but not realize what that glory is all about. Is, it's like having the show without the star of the show. Not even a cast member. Now, how does that speak to us? Well, one, one way this speaks to us is not to underestimate what John is saying here. Uh, sometimes we sacrifice the glory of Christ on the altar of relatability. And yes, Jesus is a friend of sinners. And yes, Jesus shares in human nature just like us. And he is sympathetic to our temptations. And he lived and walked among us. But he's also the glory of God revealed in the flesh. Let's not take for granted that Jesus is simply God's wisest, best representative. Jesus isn't a stripped-down version of God. In fact, the way John says it, full of grace and truth tells us that the glory of God is more full in the flesh of Jesus Christ than it was on that mountain. How can that be? We would have paid to go see Mount Sinai, but perhaps not another human being. It's because the glory of God is most full, not in its most fantastic, 
but it's most full because it is a servant glory. It is a glory that identifies with us, that shares in our struggles of life, that knows all of our temptations. That's real glory. Jesus talks throughout the Gospel of John of the glory which comes from man. A friend of mine once said, you can choose to live life either trying to please other people or trying to please yourself or trying to accept God's approval. The first two are really bad choices. Jesus spoke of the glory which God gives versus the glory which man gives. If you're chasing human approval your whole life, if you're seeking the glory of other people, it's short-lived and you're only as glorious as your last best effort. But here the glory of God has been made fully known. So we see the faithful glory revealed. Secondly, and more briefly, we see the faithful glory witness. Look at verse 16. For from his, I'm sorry, verse 15, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. So here, John the Baptist, and there are two Johns here, if you're not familiar with the story. There's the baptizer and the apostle. So the apostle reminds us that the baptizer had spoken of Jesus. And in the next passage in John's Gospel, we see more about what the baptizer said. Even though he was older than Jesus, he said Jesus was of greater rank because he existed before me. It resonates that phrase that you'll find in John's Gospel, I am. Six times Jesus says, I am. And then six other times he says, I am something. But in all those cases, it rang of claims of being the preexistent eternal one that spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai. So we have the, apostle, the, the baptizer's testimony. And he was the forerunner of the Lord. And if you look back in Isaiah's prophecies, you you see the forerunner isn't somebody who's going to point to another human being come to represent God, but the forerunner was the person who was going to come before the Lord himself. And so when John claims the role of the forerunner, he's essentially saying the one who's coming after me is the Lord. So we have the testimony of the baptizer that this one is the glorious Lord of the Old Testament. We also have the testimony of the apostle himself. He says, we have beheld him um, uh, in in verse 16, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. You have John the baptizer and John the apostle both testifying that this one Jesus is the glory of God. And this relates to John's overall purpose in chapter 20. Many of you will know it. Uh, All the things that Jesus did couldn't be written in one book. But these things I've written so that you might believe in Him, and believing in Him have life. I've got to tell Dr. Futato I got you to answer a question. (laughs) And believing in Him you might have life. John the baptizer and John the apostle are testifying, they're witnesses. They're bearing witness about the one who is the life of the world. 
And if you trust in their testimony, you will have that life. Now, don't ever wish you could go back and see what they saw. If you read the Gospels, you see everybody is trying to figure out who Jesus is. I went to a concert recently at the Bob Carr Center up in, uh, up in Orlando, and my friend and I who went together, uh, if I'd gone 15, 20 years ago, I would have tried to get a second row seat. Closer the better, right? Not at a musical concert, unless you just want to get a guitar pick thrown at you or something. But, but this was actually a musical concert. We got first row balcony. Why? Because that's where you hear the symphony the best. You see, the fact is, we who live on this side of the resurrection see more and know more of who Jesus is than even those who walked with him. Why? Well, first of all, we have the resurrection that makes sense out of everything. Jesus was speaking of his death, and it was confusing and off-putting and scandalous, and yet now we see its purpose. But more than that, we have the inspired testimony of the apostles and others like John the Baptist. We could have been standing right by the open tomb on Easter morning and not understood a thing unless God had explained to us its significance. So here's just a simple, straightforward, no-nonsense application of this. There are two, two kinds of Christians those who believe what God has said and are willing to live with the consequences of it, and those who are still in negotiation. Francis Schaeffer's last book, it was called The Great Evangelical Disaster, and he, he used the, the image of a, the continental divide. You know, the rain can fall three inches apart on the continental divide and end up where? Oceans apart. And he said where the, where the Christian church was at today was facing a continental divide, whether it would believe the word of God or not. I have two young adult children who are still walking faithfully as followers of Christ, and they are learning more and more as they grow into adulthood. There are consequences. I was recently pointed back to Abraham. You know, there's, there's such a temptation today to reconcile our reading of the Bible with our experience. We let our experience dictate how we understand what God has said in His Word. Well, what I was reading recently about Abraham is that everything in Abraham's life cut across the grain of, <laughs> of what God had said. He's old, he's beyond childbearing, and so is his wife, and he, he's living on land that he doesn't own, yet God has made these enormous promises to him and Abraham has faith and walks by faith not by believing his experience but by believing what God has said and God's ultimate and final word to us is Jesus Christ it's not always easy to understand what the Bible is saying even the Bible says that but have you put your hand to the plow have you set out to seek the kingdom of God first and leave everything else in God's hands? Or to put it in the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, have you simply said yes to Jesus? Not yes, but. Not yes, but here are my conditions, but just yes. 
if it takes me plucking out an eye or cutting off a hand or whatever it is Christ asks of me, whatever God asks of me in His Word, because He's borne witness to His faithfulness in the Son. He is the covenant-making God who keeps His covenant promises. And Jesus is the chief evidence and the ultimate fulfillment of that. And this is what the baptizer and the apostle are telling us. The faithful glory revealed, the faithful glory witnessed. The last thing I'd like us to see in this passage is faithful grace and glory. Look again at verse 16. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. That sounds like a lot of grace. Grace on top of grace. That's like chocolate syrup on chocolate ice cream. That's doubled, right? For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, don't misunderstand what this is saying. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. What John is not saying here is that before Jesus, we had no grace. But now that Jesus has come, the law is gone, and now we get grace. Oh, there was grace at Mount Sinai, wasn't there? The story I just described to you. It's not grace instead of law, but it's grace upon grace. Don't make the mistake of reading the Old Testament and thinking, oh, those people must have been so sad until Jesus came. No, they had promises. The Westminster Confession teaches this, that even though Christ was yet to be born and, and, and do His work, yet the promises and the symbols and the types and all these things that pointed forward to Christ were sufficient for the time. And this is why the writer of Hebrews is able to say, These great examples of faith in Christ, yeah, these are all Old Testament people. Or this is why Paul in Romans chapter 4, when he's talking about what justifying faith in Jesus Christ is, he says, oh, Abraham, Abraham's the best example. Because they had faith in the promises that were to be fulfilled. But now it's grace upon grace, grace and truth not came, that's not a good translation here, it's a better translation, would be grace and truth were realized, grace and truth were fully manifested in Christ. It's grace upon grace, grace that is greater than any grace before. Why? Verse 18, no one has ever seen God The only God, and again, that translation is not good here, it's the only begotten who is God, who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Now that phrase, the Father's side, it literally means like lap, or the, the, the way a nursing mother might hold a child to nurse the child. The one who has been born, the glory which has become flesh, He is the one who is at the Father's side. Jesus later prays this, right? He says, Father, glorify my disciples the way with the glory that I had with you before the world was made. Moses could not look upon God's glory and live. But Jesus has come from the bosom, from the lap. It's the very same word later that describes when John the Apostle is leaning on Jesus' lap at the Last Supper. He has come from this place of close intimacy and fellowship with the Father. 
And he is the one who is now making the grace of God known. You see, he is the ultimate witness of who God is because he himself is God. Some of you know what a supernova is. A supernova is a star in its last stages as it explodes, and the light of a supernova can can be equivalent to the light of a whole galaxy. And uh, this can happen because a nuclear fission gets reignited in the star or just because of gravitational collapse of the star upon itself. But in either case, the supernova is infinitely brighter than the star itself, although it is the sign of the end or the death of a star. Well, here in John's opening chapter, we see that the grace of God, the glory of God, now shines at a supernova level. But instead of the sign of the end is the dawn of a new age. Because even as we read the last chapters of the Bible, we see that the glory of God now dwells among God's people in a new heaven and earth so that there's no need for the sun which God created in the beginning. There's no need for the moon which God created in the beginning because the Lord and the Lamb are the light of this new heavens and earth where God dwells among His people and He will be with them forever. And that supernova has begun to shine in Jesus. To know Jesus is to know God in His fullness. To know Jesus is to have personal knowledge, that is, knowledge of a person, not just of a principle. To know Jesus is a life-altering event because what even Moses longed to see, now we see. Do you know the Son? Not just ideas about the Son, but do you know the Son through the grace upon grace which he has brought. We are no longer to be determined and defined by the glory that other people give us. There's a hymn that says, the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So we've seen the faithful glory revealed, the faithful glory witnessed, and the faithful grace and glory, all telling us that the glory of the Lord is revealed in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And if you want to know the glory of God, you must come to know it through the Son. Thousands of people last week, and probably this week as well, are descending on Orlando theme parks. If you've been there, thank you for supporting our economy. They're gonna, there were thousands and thousands of people who celebrated Christmas in a theme park, looking for an experience, excitement, terror, nostalgia, you name it. The menu at the theme parks, the menu of experiences well beyond the food menu. Looking for glory, all at a high price, all guaranteed to want you to pay again next year (laughs) and all guaranteed to leave you wanting. 
but the glory of God has been made manifest in the Son. A glory which once we possess it, once we behold it, leaves us wanting nothing else. Psalm 24 speaks of the king of glory and it asks the question, who is the king of glory? John answers that question in this morning's text. The spirit and the bride testify and the words of the hymn are now found to be true. Thou lovely source of true delight whom I unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight that I might love thee more. That's what John's testimony is for, so that we might have the glories of Christ revealed more and more to our sight, so that we might love Him more. Don't let anybody kidnap Jesus from John's Christmas story. But don't just see the baby, see the glory, and see the grace in this glory that makes it so glorious. Will you pray with me? Oh God, as C.S. Lewis once said, it's not that our desires are too strong, but they're too weak. Open the vows of our heart. Open our desires so that we might be willing to risk putting all our desires in you. Help us to transcend the fears and the hurts of disappointments of other people and the knowledge of our own inadequacies to hope that there is something so glorious that once we behold it, we'll be full and happy and never want anything else. Help us to trust you that your invitation to see your glory is an invitation you will uphold, that you have promised to reveal yourself to us. Help us to trust you that you will, and that whatever the cost, whatever things of earth will grow strangely dim, will be reckoned of no consequence as we learn more and more to see your glory and to love you more. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.